Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm Michael Quet, and today I'm excited to announce that a friend and colleague, Siamo Malachi, is going to be co-hosting the show. Siamo and I uh, met online, and uh, we worked together on something called the People's Tech Campaign, which we're going to be launching soon. And um, we're working on digital activism and things like that. Um, so, Siamo, welcome on to the show. Great to be on the Tech Empire. The yes. Tech Empire that we're trying to take down, that is. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so today we're going to be talking um, about social media, and we have on the show Jillian York. Jillian is a free expression activist and author. She serves as Director of International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and she's a founding member of Deep Lab. She is the author of Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism, which was recently published at Verso Press. Jillian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so today we're going to be talking about social media, the Francis Haugen documents about Facebook, and Jillian's book. Um, we're gonna cover free speech on social media, censorship, ideas about how to change it for, for the better um, at a structural level, um, things like that, as well as the pervasive problem of digital colonialism. Uh, Tech Empire is part of the Yale Podcast Network and can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. On Twitter, uh, visit Tech Empire Cast. My Twitter account is Michael underscore Quet, K-W-E-T. Siamo's is she Malachi, that's T-S-H-I-M-A-L-A-T-J-I. And Jillian's is Jillian C. York. All right, so maybe we'll, I think this conversation is going to go in a lot of different directions, but let's uh, start off with the uh, Facebook and the, and the Francis Haugen revelations. Um, first of all, what, what were the really big things that she brought to the table for us? And Jillian, how did you um, interpret and see what happened throughout that whole affair so far? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I mean, so there's a lot of stuff happening here. And I think, you know, I'm going to focus on the stuff that I know the best, um, which are really the things around how certain users are treated with preference over other users. So there's a couple of key um, areas that the documents cover. One is the um, XCheck program that this is one of the early leaks that was put out by the Wall Street Journal that looked at how certain verified users, but also public figures in various places all over the world, and this includes politicians, of course. Um, are given preferential treatment when it comes to content moderation. And this is a huge deal. It was also not super surprising to me um, because it is very much in line with what Facebook's executive team, especially Nick Clegg, um, the vice president for, I think, global affairs has said um, that, you know, Facebook doesn't want to be in the business of moderating politicians. But contextually, this is so important because Facebook, as my, my book covers, has been in the, the um, business of moderating everyone else. Um, and in some cases, censoring political speech in various countries throughout the world, censoring all kinds of artistic, um, journalistic and 
you know, other expression. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that this one was really stunning for, for me and for a lot of people just to have that evidence. The other big one for me, and this is much more my kind of core area, let's say, um, is the fact that, you know, the, the documents demonstrated that Facebook's content moderation lacks any sort of real linguistic and cultural competence um, outside of English speaking countries, as well as, you know, a handful of European languages. So if you look at even Arabic, one of the biggest languages in the world, um, you've got really, really uneven content moderation. You've got a lack of moderators with the localized expertise, particularly at the country level. Um, so, you know, we're talking a, a language that has dozens of dialects, right? Um, and that that revelation to me should have been really, really important, but it's actually, I mean, it's gotten reported on quite a bit, but it's being talked about so much less than the stuff around, say, the way that the algorithms of, on Instagram affect teenagers. And that's really where my disappointment comes in is that this could have been a true global conversation. And instead what we're seeing is, you know, Haugen going out and doing a tour of American and European lawmakers and saying a lot of things that do not represent what, I feel the majority of um, global civil society experts want to see happen at these companies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very interested in knowing, Gillian, about the yeah. discrepancies even among the political class. So mm -hmm. is there a fairness in terms of not getting involved in politics or is there revelations that this moderation skews toward not getting involved in certain kinds of politics? Yeah, I would say it's a little bit of both. So when the when Trump got kicked off of Facebook and Twitter back in January, I was getting, you know, all sorts of press calls around it and the way that the media's focus on it was like is this decision unprecedented? What does this mean for the rest of the world? And my answer was like, well, hold up a sec, because not only have we had some politicians and, and political figures such as, you know, Burmese generals, maybe rightfully taken down, I'm not going to defend Burmese generals genocidal speech, right? But you've also over the years seen the Iranian government basically deny, like deplatformed entirely due to tech companies' interpretations of US sanctions. You've seen um, the, you've seen the censorship or the, the deplatforming of certain politicians in other countries. One example that just comes to mind readily is Mohammed al-Baradai in Egypt, um, who was an opposition candidate. And he was, he was kicked off the platform circa 2011 during the revolutionary period. Um, and so this is not new. It's not unprecedented. And yet, you know, it's to me, it's so clear at this point that the media and Western lawmakers really only care about it when it happens to their own. Yeah. Um, so Obviously, there was this big focus on um, putting profit over people, the body and images of you know teenage um, girls, and um, then it there was also some pushback or some tension, I would put it as uh, from some people about um, how Francis Haugen. Conducts her politics and what she recommends, right? So she brought these documents to the table, and everybody should always be happy that somebody brings new information that is being kept from the public. Um, so I think everybody across the board is appreciative if that comes through. But at the same time, um, she seemed to a lot of people conservative about how she thinks that um, what you know what what steps should be taken to remedy the situation. Um, what did you think about that whole kind of ordeal? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, I, I want to just go back real quick and say that you mentioned profit over people, which is, you know, the theme right now. And also one of the titles of a chapter in my book. And I think that that is, you know, that is really the, the underlying theme of all of these documents that we've seen so far is that these companies do put profit and, and certain Western and, and U.S. in particular interests over the people, both you know, in those countries and around the world. Um, so, in terms of Haugen's choices around politics, I mean, look, like I, I very much appreciate the fact that she did bring these papers forward. And I think first and foremost, I want to give her credit for for blowing the whistle on this company. I also want to note, you know, she's not the only one to do it. And why aren't we talking about the things that Sophie Zhang, for example, brought to the table? Um, so there is a lot else there. And there's also other, there's other um, leakers within these companies that don't, you know, come out publicly, but have been sharing documents for years with journalists. And I think we gotta, we gotta note that. Now, that being said, you know, I, it can be very frustrating when whistleblowers try to be policy experts. I think that there's a couple of reasons why that happens. And one of them is that when you blow the whistle, you often don't get any institutional support. You're often not able to, um, you know, to pay the bills. And I know she's not in that circumstance, but there are many whistleblowers who are. And so I do understand why they go in this direction. On the other hand, you know, she's not alone in this. Like there's been, there's the political st Politico story this week um, that showed, you know, that she's getting quite a bit of funding from Piero Madero's foundations. Um, you know, she's working with as far as I understand, she was working with various lawmakers. Um, I don't have details on that, nor would I want to get into it per se, because um, I think really it's it's more about the fact that um, you know she's th this isn't she's, these aren't just her views. She's not just one person going around and touring. If she was, I'm not sure it would have this much of an impact. I think it's really the fact that she is representing a certain political class, and that class is not only not in line with with global civil society. I know that's kind of an amorphous term, but I guess I'm thinking of the, the academics, the activists who've been, the politicians who've been working on digital rights for a long time, um, but also really out of line with, um, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I think that sentence kind of got away from me, but yeah, she's she's not in line with what global civil society experts think. And it's, it's very much, um, you know, the positions she's taking around interoperability, around competition um, and around um, certain online harms issues. And I, I definitely want to come back to the Instagram stuff um, are not that different from Facebook's own positions. So Julian, uh, I like this mention of the various dynamics that go into people that are on the inside whistleblowing and speaking out against the awful stuff that tech companies have been doing. Um, a lot of the time you have these walkouts from these large tech corporations. We've had whistleblowing in the past before. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what's so new about this? So what makes the Hogan re revelations a special kind of information, uh, you know, revolt do you expect we'll get more insiders revolting against their corporations? You saw the big dilemma was going quite viral. Lots of former tech uh, big people saying we regret some of the decisions we've made in the past. Are we basically seeing this new golden moment of regret? And is it empty? Will it, will it amount to anything? Are these insiders just trying to catch new checks before the empire falls with a new role of like messiahs or speaking out you know, what are we seeing from the insiders? What's happening? 
Yeah, no, that's, I think that's spot on. Um, Maria Farrell, who's this incredible Irish writer, I actually had her on my podcast this week, um, but it'll be out in a couple of weeks. Um, she, she wrote this great piece on the conversationalist called the prodigal tech bro. It was about Tristan Harris, the guy who left Google and went on to, um, to found the center for humane technology. And she's basically, you know, looking at, at him as, and it, you know, he's just kind of representative. I don't want to pick on him per se, because I think it is more systemic than that. I think that these are these, these whistleblowers and these folks leaving these companies, not all of them, but many of them, um, realize that they're on a sinking ship. And I, you know, I think that some of them have political ambitions. I think some of them are just trying to make a living outside of Silicon Valley because it is toxic. Even if you work there, like I, you know, I've had friends at all these companies. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a purist. Um, and they, you know, they know what they're, they know what they're into. They know where they are. Um, a lot of people there are really aware, but it's a way to make a living in a city that, you know, where the, I think the, the minimum wage or the poverty wages in San Francisco are over a hundred thousand dollars a year, just to put that in context for, for global listeners. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that people do realize they're on a sinking ship and, some of them, how can I'm not clear on, but some of them are kind of true believers that they can change these processes. And that, that actually scares me a little bit more than the folks who are just, you know, trying to get out of there. Yeah. And, you know, for me, um, I would consider myself more of a purist on, on that question of, um, you know, working with big tech and, and for big tech. Um, I've been looking at this for uh, years, this, this question, and I'm going to be honest with you here. I've in myself and not just myself, but other people who I talk to in the background who tune into these things have been almost afraid to say that we're not comfortable with the integration of big tech and also rich foundation money mm-hmm. um, with the academic circuit and, and having ethical spokespersons. And um, if you look back at, say, um, protests against pound here and so on, um, that position hasn't been taken. It hasn't been taken against the other tech companies. Microsoft is one that comes to mind. And we do have people who are starting to talk a little bit about this, who, in my view, also are guilty parties in this. Um, so, you know, one of the, the things that comes out of this is a question of um, you know where do what you know what do you do about this issue of the apparent normalization of the mixing of big tech with the academic circuit and with the intellectual circuits, especially in light of the fact that we don't really see this in other domains. We don't see Shell Oil ethics people or Pfizer, you know, health ethics people. Um, it seems like the left wouldn't tolerate that, but it does seem to be tolerated um, in the tech world. So, you know, kind of how do you um, make sense of all of that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, back to the the purism question, just to set up my answer to this. I mean, I, you know, I spent years being a purist on this stuff and I've never worked for any of these companies and I wouldn't take their money. But at the same time, you know, I've also given the, the context in which I've worked, I've found over the years that an incremental approach to the the way that things are regulated and the, the kind of particularly the self-regulatory practices of these companies, which, you know, um, 
I, I found that kind of trying to reform them has had small successes in certain places. So for example, when Facebook silenced Palestinian activists earlier this year, we set up meetings, we started talking to Facebook on a, on a, you know, probably bi-monthly basis and got those accounts restored. Now that doesn't solve anything systemically, but I also can't, I feel like I can't avoid it. At the same time, I think it's a different question when we're thinking about the kind of the, you know, the, the human rights, um, like, like Facebook has a human rights team now. Um, they reached out to me at one point and I was like, no, um, there's, you know, there's companies, Google, Facebook um, sponsoring not only digital rights organizations, but like you said, academic work. And I think that, you know, I wouldn't hold somebody accountable for choosing to do a, you know, a policy fellowship or take money for a paper. But at the same time, I, I think that it's the, I like, I think we do have to look at it systemically and tear it down from that angle, which I know you're all about. Right. And so this is, this is where the issue comes to me is that I, I think there's been a lot of infighting and picking at people for their choices, but I'm not going to say nothing's ethical under capitalism. Um, nothing is, but more the, the fact that the, like we got to consider the, the role that these companies and these big foundations are playing. They make, they decide, you know, who gets to take part in these spaces. They make or break this work and it didn't used to be this way and they've slowly crept in. Um, and so I think we've got to start, you know, stop the picking and start making sense of it. And I would like to see more of that, but I think that the interesting thing about it, and we were chatting about this before the recording started, is that I think social media exacerbates um, these issues. It, it, it disables us from being able to organize in meaningful ways against the way that these companies are are kind of um, uh, invading all of these spaces. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to, um, you know, maybe um, ask that question of, of how far down the path of a reformist mindset has the quote-unquote tech left gone, right? So as, as, um, as you know, that, that um, I wrote an article about, you know, fixing Facebook. And so there's a question, it's not just Facebook, right? It's social media in general. And that's what your book is about. And I think this is an interesting question maybe to raise at this point is, um, you know, how do we go about really this thing, right? Called social media. And maybe we'll circle back on the tech left on this, but, um, you know, obviously, part of what social media does is allows people to rapidly exchange information and instantaneously communicate with each other. A platform like Twitter, it's most people default to, you know, stranger danger mode where you open your tweets up and, and you allow anybody to just start talking to you. Um, so in a certain sense, um, there's a quote that sticks with me from Eben Moglin from a while back and where he said, for the first time with the internet, these are the more glorious days of optimism. Um, humanity can hear itself think, but when you think about it, humanity, when we hear itself think <laughs> isn't always so great. Right. Um, and so, um, the question becomes, um, obviously we have corporations that own this. Um, it's also by no mistake. We now have TikTok, but aside from that, they're American corporations. Mm -hmm. Um, I think both Siamo and I agree, um, that, uh, big tech in general and social media is an American empire project. Mm -hmm. And so there's a question about, um, but at the same time, I mean, it doesn't mean that if we had alternatives that were not based on corporate ownership and we'll raise a question what they, they can look like, but it's not necessarily true that we're all going to be singing hands and, and singing Kumbaya and have no problems on here. Um, so how do you um, look at the question of, is there a, a 
what are the limitations on, on what can be done to make social media a more ideal space? And how do you relate that to issues of corporate ownership and, um, you know, structural factors? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of can't avoid the question of the tech left in here. And I think it's helpful to say like that, you know, I came up in in this work circa 2007, 2008, when all of it was like sunshine and rainbows and these, you know, we're going to have revolutions and bring down governments with Facebook. Um, and I mean, it was really that idealistic. Um, and so, you know, for me, there's kind of several tech lefts, not one, right? There's like the folks that I, I started working with who are mostly in the Middle East and North Africa or definitely on the left, but who are working in a very, very different context where sometimes these American platforms are the better alternative because you can't necessarily meet. You can't necessarily publish. Um, and, you know, so I, I do often see it from that lens. I think then there's also, I'm in Germany where there is also kind of a tech left that avoids all of these platforms, uses open source, everything, um, can't print because they're on a Linux machine. You know what I mean? Like that, that kind of thing. Um, and then of course, let's be know, nice to Linux here. It's not their fault. <laughs> it's not their fault. It's not their fault. It's your printer's the printers fault. are not making the drivers available for <laughs> Linux. Oh, I know. I, I know. I know. And it's, 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 you know, I love the idealism. I also like, I like getting work done. So it's always tricky. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we do have to acknowledge regardless of the utility of these platforms, that this is absolutely empire, as you said, um, and tools of, of, you know, us empire at this point from, I would agree with. Um, so, you know, what can we do? I, I'm not optimistic right now, but I want to be, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this and I'm curious to hear your thought, both of your thoughts as well. Um, you know, I think that there's, there are things that we need to do in terms of reform because these platforms aren't going away tomorrow. Um, we do have to acknowledge the ways that people are still using them in a variety of global contexts. And I think right now, a lot of the conversations happening in Europe and the United States are just very focused on American and, and European problems. Nobody's considering, um, my friends who are really, you know, in, Egypt, for example, who are really concerned about these platforms disappearing and content moderation taking down, um, you know, their political speech as well as their history in some cases. I mean, um, you know, documentation of Syrian stuff from the Syrian war is, has pretty much disappeared off a number of different platforms because, oh no, violent content, right? Or terrorism laws in the United States. And so, you know, I, it's a struggle because on the one hand, I would love to see a lot of these platforms disappear. On the other hand, I don't know how we create alternatives that are not going to be subject to state censorship. Um, and so you have to think about where you're putting the servers. You have to think about um, who, who, who gets left out when the, when there's a high barrier to entry in using a certain type of platform. That's been the, that's been the problem with a lot of the conversation around decentralized social networks for a long time is that they're hard to use. And I, I, I you know, it's, it's a simple problem, but it's actually quite a difficult one. Um, and so, I don't know. I've always personally believed it coming at it from all angles. I think we need to think about legislation, regulation. I think we also need to think about, um, you know, bringing these companies to a baseline level of human rights, um, uh, uh, respect for human rights frameworks, international human rights frameworks. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I, I rambled on on that one. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, but yeah, let me know if I, if I didn't quite answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I like what you're saying, Jillian, about who the tech left exists for. Even if we are attempting reforms, if we're attempting reforms with the objective of a very global north or western oriented activist base, then those reforms, even if successful, obviously wouldn't help people on our side of the world. Or if they help, it will be incidental. 
like um, the rise of torrenting and political parties fighting intellectual property rights. You know, you've got the piracy party in some European countries and how that incidentally maybe might assist people in this side of the world with torrenting files. But it's not like they were setting out to do something like that. And that also exacerbates what you're talking about in terms of use. You know, what language are these platforms in and those sort of conversations. I, I kind of think that if the tech left wanted to be helpful, whilst pursuing the reforms that they're trying to pursue, they'd at least try and create networks with people working in Global South, because there's no way for you to really know how you can assist and in what ways you need to assist if you're not even communicating. And you know, isn't that the point of the social media you're trying mm -hmm. to reform, to create networks and connect the entire globe? And that's the, the 0708 Kumbaya piece you're kind of talking about. So I'd say that if they were genuine actors, the first step for the global north would be to just connect. Secondly, I think there is some connections, but it seems yeah. like there's a certain kind of global south tech lefty that they'll connect with. Someone that maybe won't challenge too much or will just ask to change algorithms. So I, I, I'd wonder, maybe you can give your perspective um, yeah. Even when it comes to global north, global south collaborations, why it, it might seem more toward co-opting or finding voices that are more comfortable to listen to. So in, in what ways do we get the tech left in the north to open up the kind of voices they listen to in the south? Because I'm very afraid yeah. of just saying, listen to the global south, because there are many global souths, which is what you also said earlier. There are many tech lefts in, in the west yeah. as well. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Like, so I think, I think everything you're saying is right. I also think there's some complexity to that, that I see where there, so that work has been done in a lot of spaces. I'm not going to pat myself on the back and I don't know if I'm talking to all the right people, but I know my networks in the Middle East and North Africa are pretty strong left networks. So let me just refer to them for a minute and put aside the rest of the world for this moment and just say that, you know, in those contexts, I think that there's a phenomenon that happens when you are a a white person in the global north or a person in the global north for that matter. Um, and you're, you, you, when you make these connections with people who are maybe further on the left than is acceptable in the United States or is acceptable in Europe, um, you get cut out of the conversation too. And I've, I've personally felt that. I mean, I'm not, again, like I'm definitely not outside of the conversation, um, but there are, there are plenty of mainstream folks who won't listen to me and won't listen to those folks as well. Um, I've also seen this happen, you know, I mean, I think the co-optation that you're talking about is very real. And I think that that's happening on a certain, I wouldn't even call it the tech left. I would call it kind of the tech liberals, right? I think that a lot of the co-optation that happens exists there. I think it's these, you know, folks who are ostensibly left of center in the United States in particular, but also in Europe who, um, yeah, are, are connected to these big foundations or connected to these big companies. And again, I'm not saying I'm a purist here. I'm not saying I'm far away from that, but I think that a lot of that networking has been tried. And the phenomenon is really that um, as soon as you go a little too far in your rhetoric, you do get, you get pushed out of those spaces and particularly outside of legislative spaces, which is, you know, a lot of what really matters right now. Um, so it's, it's tricky. And I agree with you. Absolutely. There's not one global South, but there are a lot of incredible voices that, um, that are doing the hard work on this. And I, you know, I, I try my best to, to listen whenever I can. Yeah, I, I have but, an idea yeah. though, Julian, maybe we can talk about that. So yeah. <laughs> if, if, if the issue is like, you have to straddle a line between being a, 
this radical agenda you're pursuing because you see that the system needs to change. Uh, and at the same time, you're in a context where the system doesn't want you to be saying those things. You know, you can be excluded from job opportunities, isolated from the legislative space, from your colleagues, from those that you need to organize with. Uh, why don't we have, you know, movements that exist centralized around the global south that, you know, the global north supports? Like, for instance, you know, Mike just had on his podcast last week, activists here in South Africa fighting against Amazon, really just expanding bases and data centers, you know, and, and you know, you can find stories abound of, uh, you know, lithium mining in South America, cobalt mining in Central Africa, you know, where, you know, you know, wh why don't we see a lot of the tech left, maybe not pursuing, uh, you know, discourse and centralized movements on their side of the world, but just offering support to, you know, a, a lot of the movements that need to still be established and organized in the global South. Would that also yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's a great question. I think that that is in large part what needs to happen. Um, I, you know, it does exist to a certain degree. I mean, I think that one of the best examples I can think of, and you're probably familiar with them, um, they're based originally in South Africa, is the Association for Progressive Communications. Um, this is, you know, they, they're from there, but their network is global, um, you know, and that is functionally what they're doing. Again, though, I think a lot of times the issues here are, are around funding. I mean, you're, you end up when, when you refuse to take this money and I've seen this happen so many times, you end up in a position where you don't have the ability to get to the places to fly yourself wherever to, to, you know, obviously the world's changed in a couple of years. So maybe we don't need to do that anymore. Um, but you, you're, you're kind of systematically cut out because of resources. And so it is always a really difficult line to straddle. And I think that there are few who do it well. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, I think what those of us in the global North that have the resources to do need to do right now is find ways to support existing networks um, rather than trying to create them ourselves, rather than trying to, to decide, you know, who gets to be part of that conversation. And that's, that's really the frustration that I'm having the past, you know, couple of months in particular, but also for the past couple of years, since we've been all so isolated is that those, those conversations existed in a certain way before um, they existed in the backstages of conferences and the back rooms and the, you know, in the parking lot over a cigarette, whatever. And those don't exist anymore. And I think that this is where, you know, the people who do have the resources are the ones who, you know, have been like the ones in government, the ones at the companies, the ones with the money. Yeah. And I, I would add to that the, the universities, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yale Law School. I'm, I'm a visiting fellow at, at Yale Law School um, in the Information Society Project. And um, Yale Law School has a billion dollar endowment fund itself, just the law school. And then when I was in South Africa doing the PhD, uh, you go to Walter Sicily University and they don't have toilet paper, right? And you're like, well, but what this actually does matter. It does matter because it's about agenda setting and it's about the reality that you live in and that you, you traverse. Now, since I've been at the ISP, I will say there, there are quite a few great people who I've met along the way and who are members of, of the ISP. But what I did find is that the bigger names, I mean, I've been there since 2017. I've been bringing up American empire and digital colonialism. I've written quite a bit on it. Not interested. We're not talking about this. Now, you have a situation in which the United States is 4% of the world's population they have 40% of the world's household assets. Their corporations dominate the world. 
um, Deere is an, they own the high-tech economy predominantly. There's no parity with China. And especially globally, a lot of Chinese, Chinese tech is internal to China. Um, and the bottom line is um, there's an unequal division of labor and exchange that ensues because of all of this. Now, if we can't talk about this, this is a basic fact. If you're an alien from outer space, you're looking down. I mean, you're going to see the small group of people, which is really the rich elites within American society, um, are dominating the rest of the world in various ways. And tech is definitely one of them. And so we have a situation in which this isn't even part of the conversation, right? I mean, look at just the metaverse, right? I, I pitched an article to a few U.S. outlets and I got one landed in only in the South African press. And it says, you know, one of the things it brings up is not only is there a huge amount, and I do want to get your thoughts, Jillian, on the metaverse, just because it's <laughs> fun to talk about, I guess. Um, but not only is there a hype thing, like, are we going to be really wearing goggles all the time? Um, you know, I kind of stuff. Not. I mean, I can't imagine it. I, I've tried it. And, and, you know, it's a big gadget on your face. Um, but, but even putting that aside, the billions of dollars being spent on this and the, and the ones who are developing it, look at the corporations who were mentioned. They're, they're systematically pretty much American corporations, mm -hmm. right? And nobody, and then there's a digital divide. When you're looking at a place like South Africa, half the population living on $3 a day or less, who's going to afford this? So nobody's mentioning a, a American imperialism in this. Nobody's mentioning a, a digital divide in the waste of money on a flop prone project when people are, mm -hmm. are starving and all this kind of stuff. This should be basic. It should be in every left account. These points should be made, but there hasn't been a single one. And so you kind of look at this and you start saying to yourself, like, well, what's going on here? You know, why is it that this part of the conversation seems to be almost systematically excluded? And is this just about the fact that, that, that you know, when we let's go back to the question of what to do, there's the regulating the tech, but the fact that you have American corporations owning it in the first place is not seemingly to be problematized. So, you know, that to me then points to beyond just the foundation money and the big tech, it's the media and it's the elite, elite universities that are very dominant in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I want to, I want to bring up one aspect of this too, that, that I, it kills me that it doesn't get talked about, which is, you know, something in, in my book and in, in profit over people in particular, the fact that these companies put their offices elsewhere in the world in some of the most human rights violating countries. And I'm thinking of the UAE in particular, um, you know, you've got Saudi Arabia, you've got a Saudi prince owning a large portion of Twitter uh, shares. You've got all of this like really shady um, involvement with companies that base or sorry, countries that basically in part seem to exist to help the U.S. repress people, right? Like, let's not, let's not like get it twisted about what the UAE is all about. They repress their own people and they help, you know, they, they've been working with the U.S. on a lot of this for a long time. Most of the Gulf countries do. And so that's the other aspect of, of imperialism here is that these companies are, are not only towing the State Department's line when it comes to the rest of the world, but then also actively helping those countries repress their own people. And so with the metaverse, I mean, I, I see it as a couple things. I see on the one hand, you've got a culture in Silicon Valley of people who 
they don't just see the internet as a place to make the world a more open and connected place to quote Facebook's previous uh, mission statement. They, they see it as where they live, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg's video advertising the metaverse was stunning to me in the fact that he, you know, pulls up this backdrop and it looks like Hawaii, which incidentally is a place where he's bought up a bunch of indigenous land. Right. And so, uh, you know, this is, this is very much a niche um, view of the world and yet they're trying to make it everyone's experience in the world. And then of course you point out rightly that the digital divide means that this is not going to be everyone's experience. Um, I mean, there's so much wrong with this. There's VR is nowhere near where like it, I can't even put it on my face without feeling nauseous. Like I can't use it. And this is true for a lot of women because it's tested on men. So there's a whole gendered aspect of this as well. There's just so much going on. And, you know, I, it, it kills me that they, the way that they timed this shift around the leaks, it's, it's just stunning to me. I mean, I don't think that there's necessarily something conspiratorial going on here. I think that they were waiting for the right moment and found it. Um, and you know, maybe it's the other way around, but it, it is really striking that, um, you know, this is, this is managed to serve to distract from some of the most heinous violations, um, from this company. And I don't even think I got to say also, I don't even think we know the half of what's in these papers yet. Um, they have, you know, whoever's making these decisions has made choices to not release documents to many Global South journalists or very few at all, frankly. I, I know that there's a handful now coming out in different parts of the world, um, but I don't know a single Arabic speaking journalist who's gotten access. And I've been I've been asking around. That is quite telling of what's going on here. Yeah. And um, and in terms of things to do about social media. So let's circle back to that. Right. Um Social media is a very centralized space. We know that it's centralized in part because of network effects um, for the audience. Um, basically, that means that um, the more pe members of a, of a particular network, the more attractive it becomes. And um, the companies have long decided not to allow them the services to interoperate, meaning that you can't talk across the networks. And so if you're imagine having a telephone, the green phone, and you can only talk to people on green phone, and then the red phone, you can only talk to people on red phone, you're never going to have more than a few phones. And so that's, that's in large part why we have only a few networks. Um, there is an alternative way of doing this, and it's to interoperate, and then there are different versions of interoperability. Um, but um, Forcing interoperability is something that is on the table in the United States with the um, Access Act. Um, but before we get there, there has long been in place a kind of um, free and open source software community driven project called the Fediverse, um, where you have a collection of uh, social media networks that interoperate and they're all based on, um, as far as I can see with the licenses listed, free and open source software. And uh, not only can people talk to you, so they have like a Twitter clone, they have a, um, a Facebook clone. Um, Mastodon is, is the most popular one with a few million, few million users. And it's functional in the sense that it, it runs, right? Like it's not really talked about much, but it's, it's, it's there. Um, and that could, you know, serve as a prototype. I don't think, I think there are flaws in it. Uh, Jillian, I'm, I'm curious to see what you say about that. I know you and Ethan and Zuckerman, if I'm not mistaken, have uh, mentioned some things about it. But one of the things that 
we're looking at doing because you have mentioned in the global south well where are the where are the where are the servers the american platforms are giving people in countries with repressive governments a space um to uh, actually be able to broadcast out you know what they think where they wouldn't otherwise have that in this scenario and say a decentralized fediverse scenario uh, there would be a ton of networks and it's actually relatively easy to create your own and relatively cheap mastodon itself offers a service that is makeshift that is point and click and you can make your own network i did it it costs almost nothing that could be a, a lot for people who are very poor but my point is is that it's easy to make your own little network in this universe um so in terms of changing social media and making it different so it's not dominated by corporations so that it's it's um you know starting to function and and be more democratic um what do you think uh in terms of um um structural uh features and in, in change the piece that i wrote with ethan was a few years back and i think that some of my views on this have changed so the, the two key arguments that i was that i felt personally back then were one that the barriers to entry were often high in the fediverse that a lot of the technologies that existed five six ten years ago were difficult to use people you know if, if you weren't tax savvy you couldn't really jump into this and that's that was a fair critique back then the other one of course is the idea that you can't take it it being your network with you so it's difficult to you know first you've got to convince people to move to that site or to start accounts on a different site without interoperability it's it, without forced interoperability um you know you're not able to communicate with people on those platforms from mainstream corporate centralized platforms and so for a lot of people it's it's maybe not a cost or a technical barrier it's the matter of not wanting to leave the networks that they've spent years building and I want to acknowledge that as a very real thing. I think for a lot of people, this really does matter. I mean, I, I don't use Facebook anymore, but I can't delete my account because there are people that I would just lose in the world, just would never be able to find them again. Um, and so fair to acknowledge that point. But that being said, you know, I think we do need to start thinking about the fact that perhaps these networks are never going to be, these centralized networks are never going to be the right space to do organizing. They're not going to be the right space to have these global conversations. As you said, Twitter, people's um, perception of news on Twitter is incredibly skewed. They're only getting a tiny bit of it there. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking now more towards a hybrid approach where, okay, we're never going to get these platforms, or maybe we will, but I don't see these platforms disappearing, but I also don't think we need to give them our time, our data, our attention, um, you know, let them, let them suffer, move away to these other networks. And now that the barrier to entry is so much lower, as you said, I think that a lot of, a lot of the other concerns, um, uh, that I've had about the Fediverse in the past have kind of disappeared. Um, you know, that being said, I think that we, advocates, academics, whoever, um, you know, it's on us to, to kind of convince people to move away. And I think that that hasn't happened to the degree that it could. I know that there's, you know, there I've, I've been to hacker communities and hacker conferences for years. Um, and you know, nobody's, nobody's really doing the work of making it attractive and, uh, known and available to people who are not in these communities. There is this kind of, um, attitude that exists that has always been rather frustrating to me, this purism. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to, I'd like to do more here and I think we all could. Yeah. You know, I think Mike, uh, and Jillian, I, I also think that there are active efforts being taken by these large tech companies to make moving away very inconvenient and difficult, apart from interoperability. 
So if you look at something like Free Basics, for instance, that Facebook was yeah. operating, they made deals with mobile operators in India, South Africa, Kenya, and countries around the world, mostly situated in the global south, to provide people with devices that you could access Facebook for free and a few other websites, but mostly Facebook-oriented websites like Messenger. For many people, Facebook is the internet. It's the first site they go on to. It's what they use to search for stuff, to communicate with everyone. And it's not because this is a, a user who looked at their options and then decided, okay, I want to use Facebook. It's because they were handed a device that Facebook is free on and other sites, obviously, you're still going to be paying data for because an agreement at the top level has been made between Facebook and mobile operators. And it applies like that. You know, In some Southern African countries, you get this thing called a WhatsApp data bundle where you pay a very minimal fee and you're able to use WhatsApp for the entire month for that little fee. And if you were to use any other messenger, you'd be paying regular data prices only mm -hmm. because Facebook has signed a deal with major mobile operators. So, uh, but, I mean, those are both financial, but also structural things that, and, and I think it's also this new focus on the global South as a market. You know, I think the tech companies are realizing that a lot of the people in the North are maybe downloading Signal, you know, uh, for stupid reasons, like Elon Musk tweeting it or for whatever <laughs> reason they're moving a, a migrating. But it's very easy when you have a very low, uh, you know, well, I don't know what's the technical word when there's not a lot of subscribers. That's that's the mm -hmm. word they use. You know, you, you can you've got these people that have never had a cell phone before. OK, make sure that their first cell phone comes with all of our bloatware installed. Make sure that, you know, accessing Facebook is very cheap. So I saw there was a movement against net neutrality, and that was the major fight against free basics, that Facebook is choosing what aspects of the internet people can access. And I do think that's a radical fight that lots of people were fighting. And it did seem like that was gaining traction. But uh, don't you think something else that will help with these alternatives, you know, is how do we re reduce the power of these large corporations to even set deals with mobile operators and control literally the internet that people in the global south are experiencing because many people won't even have the option to choose an alternative facebook is well all they know yeah no absolutely and i mean i i do think it is a network neutrality issue not entirely but i think in large part um the part of the issue here is that if companies have the right to offer people you know bundles like that cheaper bundles or free bundles um then they're going to and so i'm you know i think obviously there are definitely other political so solutions toward uh, creating barriers to them making those deals in the first place. I got to say that's probably beyond my personal political expertise, um, but I, I absolutely agree with you. But I think that the net neutrality fight is also a really important one. And we saw in India, we saw extraordinary pushback against free basics there when, uh, when Facebook tried to make those deals with the Indian government. I think when it wasn't even called free basics back then, it might've been Facebook zero. Notice that they've rebranded like three times because of this political fight. Um, and I think that that's really telling. You know, I think you're also really right that it's it's not just a matter of cost. I mean, for some people it is, but for some it is a matter of um, the next billion people coming online and, you know, getting their first cell phone and having this option um, that's just easy and readily available to them. I know that, for example, I've, I haven't owned a television in like 15 years or a car, but if I was going to buy either of those things, I would probably just walk into the store and buy whatever they told me to buy. Right. And so I'm not, you know, I don't, I, de I definitely don't want to hold people accountable to this. I think as you're saying, and as I think we all agree, it's a systemic problem um, that requires a political solution. Yeah. And I, I would, I would add to that, that um, it requires a more internationalist orientation towards technology. Yes. 
you know, because honestly, the word reparations is, you know, it's there in the environmental movement, but it's not here in the in the tech movement. And there's a responsibility, in my view, to um, try to help out development in the global south um, in ways that are, um, you know, based on reparations. And so that could be anything from physical infrastructure development. Instead of setting up your cloud centers, Microsoft and in, in, in Amazon in the global south so that you can colonize the cloud infrastructure, you know, part of the world, um, you know, actually donating technology to the extent that you want to use cloud computing, um, um, server farms um, into the into the global south to, to help them um, develop the, the the physical infrastructure. Now, if we look at the mindset, again, going back to the tech left, there seems to be at the furthest left end of the spectrum um, that is relatively mainstream. Um, you have antitrust and uh, maybe some progressive complements, right? So you can do progressive taxation. You could start developing digital public infrastructure uh, as a public option. And um, but antitrust in particular is I don't see it ever criticized. And I, I find that interesting. And the reason I find that interesting is that the fundamental premise and, you know, being at the law school here at Yale, I've spent a lot of time on it. The fundamental premise, if you go back throughout the history up to today, is that competitive capitalism is the proper model for society and that the tech giants are basically bullies that distort the market, right? And so, and also the orientation of antitrust is towards a national base. So for, if you look at the American, you know, report that, that was put out, uh, it's about American, harms to American consumers. UK, it's harms to UK consumers and so on. And they're seeking to remedy for their national base. Um, so in terms of that, um, I just thought that was uh, uh, something that that interested me. And, um, you know, if we are going to start looking about, you know, at this from an internationalist perspective, um, I think that um, we have to start <laughs> raising these questions, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the way that I see it, and this is very non-academic of me, I got to say, this is just pretty plain, but the way that I see it is that a lot of the conversations about how to reform tech happen in a bubble that contains lawyers, some academics from other fields, um, activists, and, you know, again, people who are looking at tech and looking for tech related solutions. And so within that, within that vacuum, it antitrust makes sense, right? Because it does solve some problems. I'm not going to, I'll give it that. It's better not, than nothing. Yeah. It's, it's definitely better than nothing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not against it for that reason, but I think that there's also a couple things going on here. One is that I think a lot of these people, whether, you know, whatever their politics are, but especially if they are on the left, a lot of us don't see the possibility, or I don't want to say a lot of us because I do. Right. But a lot of people don't see the possibility for holistic changes for political changes. And there is, you know, it's not just this. I mean, people view the speech issues in a vacuum and we haven't talked about that as much, um, but, you know, we're slapping censorship on a whole bunch of different problems. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an absolutist. I'm not saying that there aren't things that we want to get rid of in society, but so many of these solutions coming from the United Kingdom, from Australia, from the US um, are looking at, you know, only censoring speech that people are demanding in those cultural contexts. They're not looking at the impact that slapping automation on those processes is going to have on political speech elsewhere in the world, on 
um, even on counter speech elsewhere in the world. And so I think that that's the real problem is this field's tendency to view all of these problems within a vacuum and not, not look beyond them toward holistic measures. And I think that's because, you know, those are hard. We're all exhausted. We're, we're in a pandemic. I mean, I get why we're here, but I don't want us to be here. And I want to start moving that conversation forward. Yeah. Janine, can I ask you about that? You know, uh, yeah. what kind of movement we're heading towards? Cause I see your work. You've got a lot of this focus on comparing what's happening in the more Western, Northern parts of the world and the ramifications that that has on Middle East, Global South, Latin America, Africa, region of the world. And I, you know, there's many examples, you know, of words that are slurs in some parts of the world, but are cultural terms in another. If you set that to be auto-moderated, then you're sort of only uh, assisting one part of the world that experiences that issue, but at the detriment of another part of the world. Uh, you know, how do we address this? Uh, I mean, it's come up a lot in this podcast. No, how do we address, you know, foreign government takedown requests? How do we address, uh, you know, discrepancies in geolocation filtering? You know, what are some of the things that we got to do to address some of the discrepancies you're seeing in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway, this represents my views and my views alone, um, is I think we got to get automation out of content moderation. It doesn't belong there. We need humans. We need a human in the loop in every single process. Now, that comes with a cost as well, which means that we need to think about the frameworks that we're using for speech moderation in the first place. And right now, those frameworks are whatever Mark Zuckerberg thinks and believes. They're not based on international human rights norms, whether that's the right norm. I mean, I think that international human rights frameworks are the correct norm. We may need to update those frameworks for the 21st century, but nevertheless, there's a reason that the world came together around these ideas and we got to bring it back to that. Um, you know, I've criticized the morality exception in article 19 pretty openly. So that, that is what it is, but nevertheless, um, I think we, we have these norms for a reason. And so that requires, you know, going back and thinking, okay, you know, we're looking at these, looking at the rule sets that these companies have, you can see so many places where the, the rules are based on either, you know, again, Mark Zuckerberg's personal beliefs and interests or on um, advertisers' interests. So the, the you know, the bans on um, nudity, sexual content, that, that absolutely comes down to advertisers and money, profit. Um, but then, you know, certain things like the way that these companies over comply with U.S. sanctions, um, uh, as well as um, the, sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? The the material support laws around the U.S. foreign terrorism organization list, um, that sort of stuff is the reason that you see Syrian um, Syrian content, Syrian documentation of war crimes, all sorts of other things that need to be preserved. That's why you see that stuff disappeared. Um, and so that's, you know, without even getting into to what you were mentioning, I mean, I think that the thing about maps is a really hard problem. And I, I got to talk to some cartographers before I answer that one. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, I think that we have to redesign these concepts from the ground up um, and we're not going to get to these solutions as long as these people are in charge. Do you think that um, like content moderation across borders, I think is really interesting because on the one hand, well, first of all, the, I think the number floated out there for Facebook is they have 40,000 content moderators and um, they're, primarily um, focused on the global north. Um, but one of the questions is, is, well, do we really want to have 200,000 Facebook workers entrenching the power of Facebook and you know, spread throughout the world, right? So if we don't, if we don't want something like that, um, 
then we still want human content moderators, but it does seem like a very expensive task, right? Just because the amount of sheer amount of content that is spewing across the network at any you know moment in time is enormous. And it's very difficult for content moderators to handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on, on top of that, right, if we're looking at a more decentralized system, we can, if we were thinking back with the Fediverse, you can potentially be living in Egypt or Saudi Arabia, but you can join a network in United States or Germany or Denmark or wherever, or South Africa, and you can get around the idea of, instead, if we're socializing the networks, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be on a state ownership model in that sense. But if you have content moderators, you're probably not going to have people living in the United States or South Africa who (laughs) know how to handle content moderation in Saudi Arabia. Right. So and at that point, if you're looking at um, content moderators who are being hired to handle your local context in repressive societies, you're going to probably see a big um, issue with that. So um, what do you think about um, that dynamic? Yeah. I mean, just like I, you know, on the one hand, I don't think that we can censor ourselves out of these problems, out of our societal issues. Again, I'm not, not an absolutist, um, but nevertheless, I, I'm not sure that censorship really solves any problems. It slaps a bandaid on certain really vile ones for sure. And I mean, we certainly don't want um, government officials being able to call for genocide on these platforms. That's obvious. But at the same time, um, there is a solutionism around this that like, oh, if we could just get perfect policing online, um, then, you know, we're going to, we're going to solve all of society's problems. Well, policing has never worked number one. Um, and number two, you know, we have expectations for online spaces that we don't have offline. Um, and so that's one thing is we've got to reconcile this, this kind of, um, fractured mindset towards the, the online world and offline world. But I agree with what you're saying as well, that I think, um, you know, this is where, different types of tools come in that, that come from more from less of a what I, I hate this phrasing but kind of a leave up take down perspective um, and one that looks toward okay how do we create friction in the technology itself how do we you know like if somebody's spamming the network if somebody's sending a thousand messages in a short period of time how do you create friction there so that that's not going on that's I mean that works for things like botnets but we're not doing that um, and then I think you know giving users more tools to be able to um, to filter out speech for themselves or for their communities. We're starting to see this happen on certain networks. Um, again, usually in, in um, you know, less corporatized, less centralized networks, but it does exist within Twitter to a certain degree. For example, the fact that Twitter's API is open so that you can create block lists outside of that is really, really helpful when you're dealing with a political situation that has gotten, um, uh, whatever word I'm looking for here, uh, problematic, I don't know, um, violent. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that we do need to look beyond this traditional, like, let's just police the internet approach. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, a lot of this comes in. I also think cultural competence and linguistic competence is absolutely vital, whether we're talking about the Fediverse or we're talking about Facebook. Um, and that is part of the problem here is that so much of the resources go towards the global North and so few of them 
go into making sure that people are even moderating in the correct language. Put, put that aside. I mean, we, we've seen the issues come out with the Facebook papers around, um, you know, you've got like Moroccans in their dialect moderating for Egypt and getting 90% of it wrong or something. But then you've got entire countries where there's no moderation um, in the local language. I think Uganda is the example that I that comes to mind often because you have seen uh, violence there in the past few years. And you've also got, I think, no moderators working in Uganda. Um, just one example. I'm guessing it's not the only one. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a whole different range of tools that need to come into the arsenal. Um, and it's not just going to be one of these answers. I, I agree. Like you can't just slap more human moderators on the problem, but it is a part of it. Yeah. And um, one of the things you say towards the end of your book, and I do want to recommend to anybody listening to um, check out um, Silicon Valley's because um, you really spent a lot of years um, building into that into that work and, and you've, you've worked all over the world. Um, so it's really, um, there's just a ton of, a ton of things in there, um, to really, um, get a sense of the, the spectrum, especially on, on content moderation issues. Um, but you say towards the end, you say, we must consider not the question of freedom of speech, but freedom of reach. Hate speech is far less of an issue when the person spewing it has just a few listeners. But on today's social media platforms, anyone can become an influencer and recommendation algorithms all but guarantee that, you know, controversial um, content will float to the top. Now, even if we got rid of those algorithms, um, you seem to say towards the end of the book. Um, now, this is from memory that everybody wants some censorship. Right. In the sense that we don't want to go on there and just like be subjected to gore and disturbing things. And, you know, nobody would want a free for all um, at the same, you know, within the legal limits. Right. Obviously, things that are un illegal, like um, non-consensual porn and things like that should, of course, always always be banned. Um, but. There is a question of um, how to deal with this issue because on the one hand yes you know people die when things are spread that are rumors about say gang rape in india um and it's and it's and it's misinformation wasn't even true in the first place um on the other hand there's the question of you know where do you draw lines about you know what people are allowed to share and who can become an influencer even when they're messed up in addition to that i would add before we even had the rise of social media, we had things like the Iraq war, which was basically based on lies. And nobody would yeah. sit there and say, let's let's ban the New York Times, right? For having in, in these other corporate uh, media. So um, what do you think about this um, tension between freedom of speech and freedom of reach? Um, what would you say to somebody who says, yeah, but is this really adding extra censorship? Is that really the right way to go about it? Is it the case that the rest of society is just messed up and we got to hit it at the level of schools and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest, I'm still there. I, you know, I spent a lot of a lot of writing the book, going back and forth and debating myself about what I really believe. And I try to do that all the time. Right. And it, it makes me come across as a little um, frenetic, I'm sure. But at the same time, I think that that's what we have to do. If we really like anyone who comes across as having all the solutions is somebody that I'm really, really wary of. 
so yeah, I got to say, I am still for less censorship, not more censorship. I am very much a believer, like I said, in, in article 19, um, in the idea that everyone shall have the right to hold an opinions without an interference. But I also, you know, I, I recognize that there are limitations to that. Although I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick on that morality clause for the rest of my life. That being said, you know, I think that right now, and again, I'm better at pointing out problems than I am at um, finding the solutions, which is why it's so important that we're all working together on this. But one of the things that I feel that I've rightly pointed out here is that these companies have absolutely preferenced the rights of certain speakers over others. They're playing a very similar and maybe even more dangerous role, uh, sorry, a uh, game of gatekeeping than the, the New York times was um, because they are saying, you know, they're by, by giving people verification, by not moderating them to the same degree as other people, they're effectively meddling. They're meddling in the world's politics. Um, they're meddling in all sorts of things. And so that's a piece of it. And then I think the other piece of it is that, you know, we, we do want people to have reach. We don't want, um, I don't want a governance of the elites. I do want everyone to be able to have some sort of reach, whether we put friction into those processes and go after the botnets and all of that is another question to me. But, um, you know, the way that the algorithm does things like, you know, I mean, we, we've all seen like Twitter and Instagram, uh, people talking about being shadow banned and particularly right now it's, um, people who, who, talk about sex, sexuality, um, sex workers in particular. Um, and so, you know, why are their voices devalued in that way? Why are they less, you know, why are they less important than anyone else? Why are they less important than a politician? And so that's the game that these companies are playing. I think that the other thing here really is that, um, you know, these, these, there, when we talk about things like disinformation, which is protected speech um, in the US, but also under international rights frameworks. Um, yeah, we do have to tackle it at the root level. I mean, I was taught um, that Columbus discovered America, for example. And so, you know, how can the US government or how can Facebook then come in and say um, that, you know, they're going to be the arbiter of what is or is not mis or disinformation? Um, that's, it's, it's definitely a real problem in our society, but it's a problem that we have to fix at the societal level. Um, and I know that that sounds like an easy out, but I don't see how technology is going to solve that problem. Yeah. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll throw, unless you have any last questions, um, Tiamo, um, maybe we'll put a last question here. One of my favorite podcasts is called, this is hell. And they have at the end, the question from hell. And, um, so maybe we'll do a little mashup here and say, um, social media is, um, pretty crazy. And, um, you know, um, the question of, you know, how much can we really do, um, can we fix it? Can we, can we make it much, much better? Is it just doomed to failure? Um, is it just fucked up? Is it the case that people in general are messed up and that's really what we're looking at. And then we can tinker around the edges. Um, we're all going to keep living knock wood for a number of years. Um, so where do you see this going? Do you think what we have is what we're stuck with for the most part, the, the core character, or do you think, um, that it could be fundamentally different, um, and that, you know, where do you see all, all of this going with the, the future direction of social media? 
I try to be an optimist, um, coming back to optimism after a couple of years of despair. And so, yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, I do think that it can be different, but I think that it's going to take some serious change in how we organize and some serious change in, um, how we, how we deal with, um, regulation and, you know, sort of the political conversation around these topics. If lawmakers and civil society and academics in the North don't start not just listening because, okay, maybe they can listen, um, but don't start listening, but actually including radically including different people in these conversations. We're not going to get anywhere. So it's, it's a, it's the yes, but it's a big if. Yeah. I think let's keep the optimism. Maybe that's not a question from hell in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I think it's great. Let's, I, I, I really enjoyed talking with you both and I would love to keep the optimism going. For sure. All right. So uh, Jillian, thank you for so much for coming on the show. This was really a fun one. Siamo, it was awesome having you start up the co-hosting. Um, and um, yeah, this is great. Yeah, Silicon to be in a thick empire. Yeah. And Silicon Values, check it out um, out on Verso Press. <laughs>